email online devotions this week. Is that what it says? All right. And then we go to this. And uh, let's begin with a prayer. Holy Father, you have given us your word to show us yourself. Uh, help us to see your grace, your glory, your law, and your gospel in your holy word. And allow us to have no doubts about the sanctity and completeness of your word, um, especially today when we look at a passage where someone might question that. So help us to remain confident and certain. You are our God. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And the Spirit lives in our hearts. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We begin with a psalm. And uh, this is kind of fun to study, uh, unless you're not into that kind of thing, and then it's a nightmare. But I really enjoyed this, and I hope to present it to you in a way that will be interesting for you. Um, you may want to make, uh, especially if you have a pencil, a mark in your Bible, but you don't have to, certainly. Um, there are a couple pencils around in the cans. Most of it's pens. But as long as your pen is ballpoint and cheap, you can write things in your Bible. Um, if your pen is super expensive, it's going to bleed through the paper for some reason. So you want to, I teach my catechism kids. Remember, remember the old packs when we were kids of Bic pens that came like 20 in a pack for a dollar? Those are the ideal pens for writing in your Bible. Your notes will last and they won't bleed through the pages. So especially if you can use, if you get a bookmark that's not fabric, but kind of a harder card stock or something like Colleen has. If you put that under the page when you're writing a note in your Bible, it's a lot easier to make a nice crisp note with a good, with a good cheap pen. But I also very much advocate making marks, making marks in your Bible. I know that some people are leery about that and some people have said, oh my, fill in the blank. Father, pastor, grandpa told me never to make marks in my Bible. I really like marking up my Bible and putting in notes and cross-references and things like that, but it's up to you. David becomes king. This is the day David was, uh, be, you know, be, uh, began to uh, reign and so forth. And on that day, you know, this is the day David brought the ark back. Uh, this is after he became king. Seven years later, he's brought the ark of the covenant back into Jerusalem, put it in a tent. We're going to find out that he did not build the tabernacle. I questioned that last time. Kind of wanted that, to leave that open for you. In fact, the tabernacle is over in um, uh, Gibeon, which is maybe to MVL from here. Gibeon is about that far away from Jerusalem. Is it four? And then Okay, all right, all right. So maybe here to the bridge away or a little closer. Um, that's where Gibeon is. So Gibeon was kind of out of town, but not really in Jerusalem. All right, let's, uh, let's begin. So on that day, David first gave the directive to give thanks to the Lord through the ministry of Asaph and his associates. And now we have a psalm that uh, will fill up the remainder of chapter 16 almost. Or 15. No, it, it is, yeah, it's 16. Um, and, it, and, and I want to show you what, what, uh, what the contents are. So if you'll just look at the screen for a second. So verses 8 to 22 correspond almost exactly. There are a couple of verbal differences. Um, sometimes him rather than the Lord, things like that, or God rather than, it's not too important, but, 
But uh, so it, it kind of equals Psalm 105, 1 to 15. Psalm 105 is a lot longer than this, but it's a nice big long psalm, but David has used a portion of it. And then the middle part, verses 23, actually most of the rest of the psalm, 23 to 33, is Psalm 96, 1 to 13. And that's where we have a really interesting textual question, at least to me. And then the tail end of it, the last couple of verses, come from the tail end of Psalm 106. Um, now, none of those psalms have an author in the Bible. So when you look them up, they are what we call an orphan psalm. An orphan psalm doesn't have an author. Like the 23rd Psalm says in verse 1, a psalm of David. Um, whenever I uh, ask my catechism kids, tell me the fourth word of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my, right? Except it's not. It's David, a psalm of David. Because the headings we believe, are part of the original text of the Psalms. There is no copy of the Psalms, going back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and even beyond, that does not have the headings. And in the second century BC, when the Greek translation was being made of the Psalms, the translators didn't know the definition of some of the words in the headings. And so they just sort of transliterated them because they didn't know. And if the, if the, if the heading is that old, that I can no longer translate it without just giving you the Hebrew word, then that's not a brand new heading, right? I didn't just make that up. So we think that the headings go with the author. Um, and I know that there are, we have some scholars in our synod who disagree with that, but all of our Hebrew professors um, at the seminary and so forth agree that, no, those are part of the original text, and I go along with that. So, um, so the, uh, kind of one question is, are those three Psalms, 105, 96, and 106, are they by David? It's the earliest reference to these things, and David is the one who, who mashes them together into this sort of super Psalm. Could they be by David? Yeah, I think they could be. Uh, which would mean that David didn't write 75 of the Psalms. Jesus said he wrote Psalm 2, that's 76, and then these three would be 77, 78, 79 of the 105 Psalms. So whenever somebody asks me, how many Psalms did David write? I usually say at least half, 75 or more of the 150 for this kind of reason. There are more examples of this. Any questions? Well, let me give you the whole, this is the whole text, but too small for you to read. But that's the pieces that come from the, the, these other Psalms. Is that maybe a helpful reference just for a second? Okay. All right. Let's get to the psalm itself. So, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, make music to him, tell about his wonderful acts. Why doesn't Hebrew poetry rhyme? Isn't non-rhyming poetry kind of a modern invention? Didn't poetry always used to rhyme? Margaret? I don't think so. No, it didn't. Shakespeare wrote 37 plays in iambic pentameter, in meter, but hardly ever rhymed. When, when in Shakespeare you come across a rhyme, what just happened? All the main characters left and the scene ends. 
That there, there's a couplet at the end of the scenes in Shakespeare, and that's usually where you get a rhyme. And that, that's kind of a boom to tell you end of scene. That's how you know things like that. If you're just watching the play, you can, oh, we must be at scene four now. That kind of thing. Besides the fact that Mercutio just died, or whatever it is. Um, so anybody know what play that is? Oh, let's just go on, sorry. Um, so Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme because in Hebrew you have endings that are added to the ends of the words to, to tell you things like number and case. So everything would be the same ending. That, that's not rhyme, that's just identical endings. Um, so if cherubim and seraphim, that's just the plural ending of anything, any masculine root word in Hebrew. So, I mean, it, it's, it's not really a thing in Hebrew, except once in a while in Isaiah, he comes up with a genuine rhyme. I think because he's playing around with language, because I believe that Isaiah was, as far as language goes, a genius. Unlike many other authors of, I mean, everybody there is a genius, but Isaiah's way up there for his knowledge of the use of language to bring about his words. But here you have parallel terms. And so in verse 8, the first two pieces, give thanks to the Lord, call in his name, they correspond kind of to sing to him, make music to him. They're all command things, right? And Lord, name him and him all go together, all talking about the same person. And then the, the end of verse 8 and the end of verse 9 then go together, make known his deeds among the peoples, tell about all his wonderful acts. I'm not going to do that for every single verse, but there, this is the way that Hebrew poetry sometimes works, especially in the more complex poetry of David, where it's not just parallel lines, but things are going on outside the parallel lines also. Verse 10. And by the way, if you want, to, want me to stop and ask about a, a word or something, please do. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind of walk us through. And I have a partial outline in your notes where verses 8 to 25 are the give thanks section, then we'll move to the only true God section, then the final all creation gives thanks um, before the, the, the last couple verses, eternal salvation is from the Lord. So those are the four pieces of the psalm. Okay, verse 10, praise his holy name. The hearts of those who seek the Lord will rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember his wonderful acts, his signs, and the judgments of his mouth. Um, remember that back in, earlier in this chapter before the psalm started, David wanted to sing a song where people would remember, thank, and praise God, the three different elements. And now he's using all of those terms. Also seek. What do you think about the word seek when we think about God? Do we seek the Lord before we become believers? Well, we don't know what we're looking for, right? Before a person becomes a believer, they don't really know. And so they're seeking something, but not really the true God. They may look right at him and not know that he's what they're looking for, right? But once we've come to faith, when we begin to put our trust in him, then we will begin to turn to him for things like answers and enlightenment and guidance um, and so forth. And that's really the seeking that we're talking about here. Seek his strength, seek his presence, uh, seek the Lord and rejoice. Does that make more sense with this? Okay. 13 and 15. 
You descendants of Israel, his servants, you sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. Is anything beyond God's control? No. Is anything beyond my control? Oh, everything. Even what we're going to do with our kittens is beyond my control. But, uh, but nothing is beyond God's control. Remember his covenant forever, a word he commanded for a thousand generations. That's a huge amount. How long is a generation? 20, 25 years? Um, a thousand generations would be a long time, right? And really to the beginning of time, that kind of thing. All, all the way back to Adam and Eve. His covenant which he made with Abraham which was his sworn, sworn promise to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a statute for Israel, an everlasting covenant. He said, to you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion for your inheritance. So God promised this all, to all three, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, at separate times, usually just after dad died. Abraham's father, Terah, dies. Abraham has moved. God promises to Abraham. Abraham has died. Isaac has begun to be the kind of the head of the family, although old Eber is still living back in the tent out back because they're called the Hebrews, not the Isaacites ever. But, uh, but Isaac gets the promise. Um, and then Isaac is extremely old and Jacob gets the promise. I will give the land of Canaan as a portion to your inheritance and so forth. They sometimes got the promise earlier, but in each case, I think after dad dies, the son gets the promise again. Even though your numbers are small and you are insignificant for you are, and you are living in, the, living in it as aliens, how big was the family when Abraham got the promise? Two, Abraham and Sarah didn't even have the kids yet. I mean, not even... Uh, I mean, uh, Isaac wasn't born, uh, but also uh, um, Ishmael wasn't born yet. And, and then when, when, uh, when Isaac got the promise, uh, mom had died. Dad maybe was on the way, but it was just Isaac and his, and his wife. You know, there's Jacob and Esau, but not a very big group, right? And then Jacob, well... They're all, all the way up now to 70 after three generations. Any of you, can any of you count down to 70 in your family going down three generations? Can you get close to it? My, my grandmother going down to my generation counted 120. So yeah, it's kind of a typical, for, for our way of thinking, maybe a kind of a typical family. Um, maybe not in some cases, but after the kids, when the grandkids start getting married, and start having babies. You, you, the family kind of mushrooms pretty quickly after a while. Yet he did not permit anyone to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account. Did God rebuke a king over Abraham? Yeah, when Abraham and Sarah played that uh, she's not my wife, she's my sister game, and then Isaac did the same thing. And then with Jacob, uh, Pharaoh, uh, got warnings and so forth when the family was down in Egypt. You must not touch my anointed ones against my prophets. You must do no harm. Um, sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful acts among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
He is to be feared above all gods. Want to talk about that phrase? Whoops. Above all gods. Is that good theology? Is God giving a nod to, 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 to the little gods or something like that? An accurate reflection of the psychology of sinful human beings. We will make a God out of whatever we want. Oh yeah, we'll make a God out of anything. Yeah, whatever, whatever. Um, the Bible does talk about other gods as gods who are not gods. Let's just go to two New Testament passages. Galatians 4.8, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. So if you bow down to it, it's become your God, right? If, how does Stevie Wonder put it? If you believe in things that you don't understand and you suffer, finish. Superstition is the word. If I had the music going, you'd have known, but uh, okay. So, and then Paul again, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things came, or rather from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So, even if there are so-called gods in heaven or earth, and he says, indeed, there are many gods and many lords, once again, you can understand it two ways. Anything we enslave ourselves to has become our god, right? Or could these also include things like the demons that oppress people and subject them and, be, and get worshipped by them and so forth? I think the first one is probably what Paul has in mind that it's actually just anything we want to um, submit ourselves to. Whether it's an idol or whether it's a concept, it has become your God. Who did the Pharisees actually worship? Their own opinion of God's word. Yeah, they put a hedge around the word of God and really obeyed the hedge rather than God. That's, that's a weird idol, isn't it? That's just a strange idol, um, but it not, was not at all God's intention. Well, David himself goes on, assuming it's David, for all the gods of the peoples are not gods at all, but the Lord made the heavens. So the true God made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. What does ascribe mean? Yeah, give, give him credit for. Yeah. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Surely the world stands firm. It shall never be overthrown. Well, until when? Until judgment day, yeah. Now, let's kind of live on this screen for a while. The heavens will be glad. The earth will rejoice. So the context here is of what? Praising God. Heaven and earth, right? So kind of all creation. Keep that in mind for a moment as David has suddenly made this the context. Heaven and earth, all creation are praising God. 
They will say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Um, let me look at verse 32 before we go back to the end of verse 31. Because that, that's where our, our, our hiccup is. The sea and everything that fills it will roar. The fields and everything in them will celebrate. We have another verse coming up about the trees praising God as well. However, can we go back up to the Lord reigns? The Lord reigns. Um, now, I'm going to change the background while I'm doing this so that you know that I'm in the realm of what's going on here. Okay? So, the Lord reigns. A very early witness to the text of the Old Testament, earlier than any of the manuscripts we have today. Uh, his name was Justin Martyr. He was born around the year 100, around the time that John the Apostle died. That's about when he was born. And he lived about 50 years. Um, and he, because he... Uh, 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 men and women who died because of their faith were called martyrs. That's the word for witness in Greek, um, martyr. Uh, men and women who suffered because of their faith but weren't killed because of their faith are often called confessors. So you have some ancient, I'll call them saints, some ancient Christians who are often called confessors and others who are called martyrs. And they all got persecuted because of their faith. The difference is the confessors didn't get killed because of their faith, but the martyrs did. Okay? So Justin Martyr was put to death because of his Christian faith. Justin Martyr, main, and, uh, Justin Martyr maintains that this verse actually ends this way. The Lord reigns from a tree. What would that mean to a Christian? The cross. Right. If a Jew saw this in, in, in Justin's time, shortly after the time of Christ, if a Jew saw this verse um, and sees that at the end of the line there are just three little letters that form that phrase from a tree, Maim Ayan Tzade, Meitz, from a tree, is it possible that that individual who believed differently than Justin might be led to pick up his eraser? And that's what Justin maintains, is that this phrase from a tree got taken out of manuscripts of Psalm 96, verse 10, where this is taken from, and 1 Chronicles 16, what are we in, 31, the verse before us. There is no example I know of of this kind of erasure happening intentionally for doctrinal reasons anywhere else in the Bible. Um, there are examples of things being altered slightly for the sake of delicacy. These are things that are called itura soferim, where um, uh, King Saul goes into the cave to do what? To wash or water his feet. When in fact, what is he doing? Yeah, he's found a chamber pot, right? Um, and so we have a little delicate phrase there. Things like that. Uh, and why they would use a, a, a choice of a delicate phrase for that and not some of the other beheadings and de-thumbings and things that go on, I don't really know. But you know, they could have just said put to death in some other areas that would be a little bit more delicate. But Justin, who's our guy here, 
uh, Justin uh, uh, genuinely and, and adamantly maintained that this got taken out of, that he had seen copies of the Bible where it was there. And that now he was beginning to see copies where it's gone. Um, have you looked at the, at, um, how many of you have an NIV 2011 with you? No? Do you have an NIV 84? And does anybody have a Bible that's older than an NIV 84 with them? I can't really do the comparison easily, can I? You have 84s, yeah. I have up here an NIV 2011. I'm asking you to look at the end of Mark. Mark 16. Verse 8 and following, I think. Or is it 9 and following? In your NIV 84, can you tell me what it says? Is there a line or something? Colleen, you have that? Let Just tell me the text that follows it, the, the Bible text, not the note, the Bible text. Is it the same as the rest of the Bible text that you have, or is it smaller or something, or does it look about the same? Looks the same. Now read the note you have above that, the smaller note, 9 through 20. The, the truth is, two, not the most reliable, but two ancient Greek manuscripts do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. And a couple of translations do not have it. Um, and one of them, I don't have the picture here, but I have it in my office. The, the, one of them, one of those two that, has, that doesn't have it, leaves space for it which tells me that the copyist knew about it. And then before he started the next book of the Bible, he left that blank in case he could come back and put it in. He just didn't have it in front of him, so he left it out until he could get back to it. He never got back to it. But that in the, in the NIV 73, it said, two ancient manuscripts do not have this. Then in 78, that changed. In 84, they put in the line that you have in there now. Now, what does the NIV 2011 say? The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have, verses 9 through 20. And then, what does it do to the text? It's italicized. Now, in more recent editions of the NIV 2011, it's not only italicized, it's shrunk. So it's getting smaller. So it's What's, it's, it's like it's, you can see it over, over, over the decades. It's, it's, it's shrinking. What's going to happen eventually? It'll, it'll, and maybe it'll be a footnote one of these days. And then it might be gone altogether. Um, and Justin is saying, that's what I'm seeing happening in Hebrew manuscripts right now, and Greek manuscripts right now. He, also, he, he had a, 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 um, a manuscript where he saw the, the words not only in Greek, but also one in Old Latin. And he said, I still got copies with this in it. And then after his time, those are gone, except that Justin's writings about it got preserved. So he's the, he is now, along with the Old Latin, um, are the witnesses, are the only remaining. But um, uh, 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 so he's saying it should be the Lord reigns from a tree, and that the, 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 the word is really that got knocked out was may eights from a tree or the cross uh, from the text. 
And he quotes it two ways as apo zilu from a tree or in, in Latin aligno uh, from the cross in the old Latin. And I would like to just read this to you because I wrote it carefully. While we might be skeptical that a phrase could be completely removed from every copy of scripture, Justin is quite vocal about it. And I'm going to just insert here how many copies of the Bible existed in the year 100. I mean, a lot, but not that many. And, the, and the, one of the issues is, if you change the copy in Jerusalem of the Hebrew text, all the Hebrew copies are made from that copy. So you make a change to that one in the temple, um, or, or that they were going to have later in Jamnia or wherever, um, all of them are judged according to that copy. And if they, don't, if, they don't, if they don't match up to that copy, they're destroyed. So if that one suddenly removes a word, then anything that doesn't correspond to it is destroyed. You get how that could happen now, all of a sudden? It's, it's, it's like updating a Facebook page, kind of. You know, you make a, all of a sudden, I, at least I think that's how it goes. I'm not on Facebook. Okay, let's go on. We know that the triumph of the cross is not diminished if these words are not in the Bible, nor is the theology of the cross enhanced if these words should be here. Since the same thing is taught in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2, the Lord reigns from the tree, Christ reigns from the cross. It's the same, right? So what do I care if it's not in the Old Testament, if it's in the New? And also, isn't Isaiah 53 all about the crucifixion anyway? But about Justin's time, that all of the copies I know of, of the, of the, of the list of the lessons used in synagogues, the, the cycle of lessons used, they today do not include Isaiah 53. So is there something going on there as well? This is a theology that is uncomfortable probably to that religion. Um, and therefore... Something is going on there. So whether we praise Christ reigning in heaven or from the cross, Christ reigns eternally. If there was an attempt to diminish Jesus, it failed. Right? The word of the Lord stands forever. And then I just want to add one thing uh, before I get to your question, Jeff, which is that none of the Dead Sea Scrolls or other ancient fragments prior to Justin's time quote 1 Chronicles 16.31, our verse, or the parallel one in Psalm 96.10. The earliest copies in Hebrew, Latin, or Greek come from later, uh, especially Hebrew, from the 9th and 10th centuries A.D. So there isn't a copy that, that's older than Justin. So he himself becomes our oldest copy. So, yes? Back to Mark 16. Yes. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there are two manuscripts with a blank. Aleph, Codex Sinaiticus, has a blank. Codex B, Vaticanus, just ends the page. Okay. So there's no blank there that I know of. How many other manuscripts are in existence? Oh, at least a thousand. Okay. So, so, the, so the weight of the evidence. Oh, the weight of the evidence and the quality of the evidence. Although some modern scholars, they're, in, they're so in love with Codex B, Codex Vaticanus, because it is just so pretty. 
And I'm not kidding. Um, it is ancient. It's 4th century AD. It's beautiful bluish ink on nice bright white paper. It's very easy to read. Nice. It's beautiful handwriting. It is so pretty. Um, and from, from Egypt, it's got the whole New Testament and a lot of the Old Testament is all there and two of the church fathers. Um, but they're, it's like they're in love with it because it's just so pretty. And other copies of the complete New Testament that are uh, like a like hundred years older are ignored because the guy's penmanship was a little bit rough. They're a little, they're not in the be, as good a shape, you know, things like that. And it's a little bit like being passed up for a more attractive, younger version, you know, it's uh, of of me or whatever, you know. It's you you get sad, um, but a tendency with the Egyptian manuscripts. There are six regions of manuscripts. The tendency with the Egyptian manuscripts is to smooth things out and to make subtle changes. And so Egyptian manuscripts are often just naturally a little suspect. And when it's all the other manuscripts against the Egyptians, you begin to wonder, oh, okay, maybe something was going on there. So, okay, so the Lord reigns from a tree. Is it a possible erasure? Maybe. Does it matter too much? Not too much. Is it kind of interesting to think about? Kind of? Yeah. All right. Let's. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.